Welcome to our Climate and Sustainability Trailblazers podcast with me, Emily Faramond. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Kelly Goddard, Chief Sustainability Officer of the Renewable Power and Transition Group at Brookfield Asset Management. I'm also joined by Anya Davis, who heads up our Energy Markets Advisory and Analytics Practice at Baringa. Welcome, Kelly, and thank you for joining us. And can I say how excited we are to have you on our podcast? At Baringa, we're delighted to be working with Brookfield, a major player in the transition to a low-carbon world, and we're excited to hear more about your strategy to decarbonize, and in particular, the recent proposed origin energy investment. So let's get started. And I wanted to start by learning a little bit more about you, Kelly. Could you tell us more about your personal and professional interest in climate and sustainability? It's great to be here today, Emily, with you and Anya to talk a bit about sustainability and decarbonization. Clearly a personal passion and also one where I have the luxury of having a role that that mirrors that passion. I've been in sustainability for almost two decades. I've been with Brookfield for about two years. And prior to that, I spent my career with a European major energy company, delivering sustainability in our operations and projects around the world, and then leading sustainability at the corporate level, including working with the company to set their net zero targets. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing that with us. And over to you, Anya. Really interested to hear about your personal professional interest in climate and sustainability. Marvellous. Thank you, Emily. And wonderful to be on the podcast with both you, Kelly and Emily, to talk about this today. So I have spent the last 20 years of my career in the energy industry. um, And in the last 10 years, we would probably call that more focusing and supporting the energy transition. And I am extremely fortunate to work with this amazing, talented team that works with governments, policymakers, investors and corporates in working out and navigating their transition to a decarbonised economy. First question I wanted to ask you, Kelly, was really around strategy. And Brookfield, I think, is a really, really exciting organisation who've made a number of high profile investments in carbon intensive assets, specifically with the purpose to decarbonise those rather than simply divesting from the market, as we've seen many others do. Be really interested to hear from you. Brookfield's transition strategy for those who aren't aware of it, and also a little bit more around your investment decision considerations, such as the region sectors and asset types specifically that you're focused on. Well, maybe I'll start by talking a bit about Brookfield asset management and our focus on decarbonization at the company level. And really, we're focused on two two key areas, operationalizing decarbonization across our whole portfolio and, as you mentioned, investing in transition. With regard to the first area, operationalizing decarbonization, we are signatories to the Net Zero Asset Management Initiative and have a target to achieve net zero emissions across our whole portfolio by 2050 or sooner. We've also set an interim 2030 target And we plan to build on this over time. So that's at the Brookfield Asset Management level, and that's across our portfolio of renewable and transition, real estate, infrastructure, private equity. But we are also investing in transition, including in carbon-intensive assets. And this is really through our Brookfield Global Transition Fund, or BGTF. 
And this is the part of the business I sit in. So um, the focus of my participation today. And within BGTF, we are solely focused on decarbonization. We see a huge need and opportunity on really decarbonizing the energy sector. And that's because over 75% of the world's emissions can be traced back to the energy sector. So we see the single most effective way to address global emissions is to target the sector. And importantly, we also see momentum with governments and companies. They continue to set net zero targets and provide incentives in this space. I think the last number I saw was about 8,000 companies have now set net zero targets, and that continues to grow. Those companies are looking for partners with deep technical expertise and capital to support um, them in meeting their own targets. And we feel like this is a natural fit for us. We've been in the renewable development and operational space for many decades. We have about 3,500 employees on the ground uh, that deliver development and operational aspects of renewables today. The fund itself has a dual mandate, which is, which is a key aspect of the fund. We wanna deliver strong uh, financial returns as well as a measurable impact. And importantly, we also have a focus on additionality. So we identify the contribution we can make specifically through our capital and deep expertise to have a change over and above what would have happened without our participation. We have a, a focus on three themes, and this is on first business transformation. We wanna go where the emissions are and partner with carbon intensive companies to help reduce those emissions. The second theme is additional renewable capacity. So we are investing in adding renewable capacity to the grid. And the third theme is sustainable solutions. So these are solutions or services that are necessary to facilitate the energy transition, areas like carbon capture and storage, renewable natural gas, recycling. Within our first fund, we raised 15 billion. We closed that fund in 2022, and we have deployed or committed the vast majority of that fund. And, and we think this is in a relatively quick period of time, which demonstrates the opportunity set there is to invest in transition. And we've already been out to market to launch the second fund, again, showing the opportunity there is to invest. Thanks for sharing that. I'm really interested though, to hear a little bit more from you about how you're balancing that drive to meet net zero with the transition, transition strategy, and then also delivering the returns that the market expects of you. Sure. Well, as I mentioned, our transition strategy in BGTF is focused on decarbonization and net zero. So we see this as one and the same thing. But we thought it was important that we have a credible approach underpinning this strategy that would ensure that impact is deeply embedded into each of our investments, that we track our progress, and that we report transparently to our investors. So in order to do this, we did develop an impact measurement management framework, or an IMM, to provide a consistent and transparent guideline on how we set measure and report on the impact component of the fund. We consider impact at the earliest stages along with the financial returns. And it's really the investment teams that do this. For each of our investments, we set interim and long-term targets that are transparent, quantitative, and verifiable. We set these using third-party guidance and scientific pathways where relevant. So importantly, we don't have an internal basis 
that we set these impact targets on. You know, we, we rely on the external guidance and pathways to set our targets. And that provides, you know, transparency to our investors and it, you know, holds us accountable to our goal of investing aligned with the Paris Agreement. Post-close, we integrate these impact targets into the business plan. So again, the business plan will, will entail both the return targets as well as the impact targets. Um, and then we regularly monitor these and report transparently on a quarterly basis of those of those targets to our investors. And on an annual basis, we report, <coughs> excuse me, comprehensively on our greenhouse gas emissions and have these assured by our financial auditor, again, demonstrating the focus of the financial returns and the impact returns having the same amount of weight. Just interested in hearing a little bit more from you about the importance of Brookfield's role in decarbonizing the real economy. I would say first, we do focus on proven technologies and focus on areas where our large scale capital and deep renewable and energy markets expertise can make a measurable decarbonization impact. And just to put this in a bit of numbers, so in BGTF1, we invested in additional renewable capacity, including in three leading US developers. And we have a total target to build out approximately 35 gigawatts of new renewable capacity. And I get asked a lot of what's a gigawatt, what's that equivalent to? So 35 gigawatts is equivalent to avoiding about 55 million tons of greenhouse gas emissions. And that is about a bit more actually than, than all of New York's city's emissions. So building out that amount of capacity, you know, avoids 55 million tons, again, equivalent to more than New York City's emissions. And how does that uh, additional capacity help to decarbonize the real economy? Well, as we develop renewables, we sign power purchase agreements or PPAs with customers to help them meet their decarbonization goals. We have about 900 customers, including some of the largest renewable purchasers in the tech space, for example. But we also importantly provide renewable power to our Brookfield businesses and sign PPAs with our real estate assets, for example. And today I'm sitting in Canary Wharf and we've signed a PPA with Canary Wharf Group um, to provide 70% of its energy from a Brookfield developed wind farm in Scotland. So that's an example of, of, of taking our targets and then turning them into sort of decarbonization of the real economy. In addition to renewables, we've also invested in decarbonization solutions such as CCUS, renewable natural gas and recycling and have similar impact targets associated with those. Again, while critical and very important to continue investing in, in renewables and sustainable solutions, it's not enough. We also have to take action to reduce emissions. So we have made investments in carbon intensive utilities, again, with targets aligned with scientific pathways. And those targets aim to reduce millions of tons of emissions in the medium term. Brilliant. Thank you for sharing all of that, Kelly. Um, just wanted to talk to Anya for a moment and thank you very much for taking the time to join us today, Anya. Just interested to get your perspectives on the energy market and specifically the opportunities and challenges you're seeing for energy transition funds. Thanks, Emily. And uh, great to hear you talk on the subject, Kelly, uh, as well. So, so I think we're seeing a lot of interest in 
investors moving capital into energy and um, and the support of decarbonisation agenda. I think for me, there's there's some some upsides and some downsides that we're sort of facing into that. There's one which is around the governmental support, so and actually having a sustained set of policy and regulation and that differing in different geographies so kind of obviously there's been a, a lot of a lot of news and focus on the RA um, in the US I think the UK has kind of come out and and quite early established um, some views around their policy commitments and GCC for example as well having some quite high commitments and high ambition I think there's definitely a challenge there around can governments hold their nerve and maintain some of those commitments and the policy environment so that investors are confident in moving capital into those geographies for over the medium to long term. I think the other the other thing that's really interesting when I hear speak to my my clients is desire for infrastructure funds um, like yourself, Kelly, to, to move capital into the area, but often finding it hard to find places for big ticket sizes where they're used to having deployed capital in, in that manner and obviously their stakeholders understanding that. And so I think as we look for developing maturity and proof points around biomethane, for example, it's really hard to find big projects um, that have significant size where people feel comfortable in deploying capital um, with regards to the risk and the maturity of that technology. And, and you mentioned that briefly, Kelly, as well around your investment thesis. And I think for me, this is where we may see them taking infra funds, taking a sort of leaf out of some of the PE books where actually developing platforms for roll up uh, and actually building areas where there's significant volume and desire to deploy capital, but having actually to take on a number of different projects in a particular theme. Um, so we've just seen, I think it is uh, Goldman Sachs um, make that commitment of a, a billion uh, dollars into Europe around following biomethane. But obviously that's going to have to be over a number of different projects and actually getting an understanding of um, where they are in the maturity and the confidence around some of those projects coming through. And Anya, are you seeing any notable differences regionally in terms of how transition is unfolding and the shift towards greener asset portfolios? Yeah, and I think kind of it's, it's and it'd be interesting, Kelly, to bring you into, into this because I think there are uh, operating at sort of an international level, there are different paces at which different regions are operating. And I think back to that governmental support and commitment and, and that stability around policy, but also actually the pace in which some of the economies can untangle themselves from a, a carbon-based economy. So if I think about sort of the African nations and their how intertwined they are into oil and gas, that I think may take some a different pace um, and sort of some patience involved in the projects that people put into and then the capital put into it versus perhaps a northern European perspective where perhaps more more confidence in moving forward and and perhaps a little bit more drive and ambition over a much shorter time um, and I think some of that is going to be underpinned by the local populace's um, desire to see the pace move as well. I think for us again I with the cost of renewables going down, globally, you know, there is a market for developing renewables. I think to your point, for more decarbonization solutions, yes, it's helpful to have government incentives behind it. Uh, and, you know, we've seen that in the US, we saw it in California, for example, supporting CCS before IRA came in. And again, with IRA, we, we expect technologies such as CCS, hydrogen to be more attractive um, investments. 
yeah, support what you said, but again, government incentives are helpful, but I would say not necessarily worth waiting for them in all in all technologies and all markets. And and I mentioned we invest in three large U.S. developers in renewables. We did those all before IRA was in place. So so again, there are opportunities um, to to make investments across um, technologies, but again, incentives always help that. And Kelly, just on that, are you almost betting on some of those incentives coming through or are you comfortable that those investments actually wash their face without changes in governmental support? I'll use those three examples that we made in the U.S. before IRA came in place. Again, those were underwritten along with the dual mandate, strong risk adjusted financial returns and a measurable impact. Again, IRA coming in is upside for those investments. But that being said, I do think, you know, there are investments, you know, and that become much more financially attractive with incentives. So I would say it's a bit of both on a, you know, of course we model that where they're in place, but we're not betting on those as part of a, a scenario when we do our underwriting. They're either in place or they're not, and our underwriting needs to meet our, our mandate regardless. Thank you both. Just back to you, Kelly, really, really keen to explore the Brookfield-led consortium that's invested $12.5 billion in Origin Energy. And for those who aren't aware, Origin is Australia's second largest energy generator and retailer, which has a reasonably high carbon footprint, not least due to its current energy mix, which includes coal-based generation. So I think I know you've explained this through the strategy, but I appreciate for some it might seem like a counterintuitive move given some of your net zero commitments and the role you've articulated around real world decarbonisation. Can you help us understand a little bit more about your plans for that business? I'm very excited about our investment in origin. It's a great, or our planned investment in origin. It's a great business and it will have a measurable impact. With our institutional investors, as you mentioned, we have a plan to acquire Origin Energy's energy markets business. Origin Energy Markets business is the largest generation of retail business in Australia, and it is an attractive large-scale opportunity. It has a great management team. I had the pleasure of of going and meeting with the management team and going and seeing the sites, and it is you know a fantastic business. It's a high-quality platform, and and a great impact and decarbonization opportunity as well. Currently, almost, as you mentioned, half of Origin's power generating capacity comes from uh, the Araring coal-fired generation plant, which is one of Australia's largest coal-fired plants. And our business plan includes investing between 20 and 30 billion Australian dollars in renewables and storage to build out 14 gigawatts of capacity. By doing this, this will enable the retirement of Auroring without compromising grid stability and significantly reducing origins emissions. By executing these plans, we're not only supporting origins decarbonization, but we're also supporting Australia and meeting their 2030 targets as well. I think it's important to say that, again, we think this is great for impact, also great for business by transforming the business you know, we believe that it is it will be one that is de risk more flexible and better positioned to capitalize on, on new and emerging market opportunities. So again, a great opportunity from a business perspective, but also from an impact perspective. 
And it just just uh, keen to bring you in as well again here, just to hear your perspectives that from what you're seeing in the market. How does the Origin deal compare to other deals um, that you've seen recently, both in terms of the relative size, but also in terms of the potential environmental and social impact? Well, I think it's quite a material is highly impressive the scale and the level of commitment to as I've been sort of calling it the sort of brown to green transition and I think what's becoming interesting as I sort of speak to your peers Kelly as well is that there's now a real desire it's not just deploying capital I think there's this and, and you said it up in in your intro actually is this skilled and understanding of technology a bit of patience as well and understanding of the risk that sits underneath um, deploying some of these technologies and how to do that in a skilled way and I think this is going to become really interesting for what I think are assets that have the ability to go from brown to green will become quite highly sought after. Investors are looking for ways to deploy capital and to be able to satisfy their stakeholders for not only returns, but also to be able to, to demonstrate their decarbonisation commitments. And so I think this is going to be interesting, actually, for asset managers and investors to actually know that it's not just moving money around and putting money to, to work. It's actually this business transformation that will also need to be supported alongside. And I think that's an interesting point for investors that they will need to start understanding the technology. They'll need to understand genuine business transformation that sits around here and how long that journey takes as cultural awareness and leadership development alongside putting money to work as well. So I think it's a, an interesting development for investors in actually the, the race to deploy capital will become more sophisticated, I think, in how they're deploying capital and how they're taking and supporting organisations on that journey. Thanks for those perspectives, Anya. And I had a bit of a sentiment check that I wanted to do with both of you. I feel particularly at the moment, we seem to be working really, really hard to decarbonise, but we've got a really, really interesting political backdrop in a number of geographies. Um, we're seeing severe weather events at the moment, currently in particular, uh, the media is full of uh, wildfire news, it seems. I'd be really interested in, in both of your perspectives um, around what is it we can feel positive about in terms of transition and how we're progressing? And where do you feel further focus is required? And Kelly, I'd love to hear from you first and then Anya. It's positive in some days. It's daunting the scale of the challenge we still have ahead of us. But I would say I am an optimist. I think you have to be an optimist to be in this role, but also because there's real quantitative tailwinds to the transition. I mentioned the number of companies continuing to set targets and looking for, for, to develop, for partners to develop concrete plans. And we engage with companies like this all the time. So it's exciting to see the commitment that we're seeing from major corporations that have significant footprints and their commitment to decarbonize and looking for solutions to help them meet their targets. I would say the price of renewables, the cost of renewables continues to come down. We're seeing all the studies in IEA showing, you know, the forecasts and 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 uh, for renewables and and the investment estimated, for example, in solar, which will, you know, is due to outpace oil and gas. So there are real tangible, quantifiable sort of reasons to be positive. The other one is energy security. With the war in Ukraine, companies continue to be focused on, on re, uh, energy security. Again, renewables is the obvious way to provide that security. 
And then we're seeing incentives around the world frequent place. And Anya mentioned IRA again. IRA, you know, is is a great example. And we're already seeing the momentum and that being put in place. And 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 several other countries are following that. So I would say there's a lot of tailwinds happening, um, which is great, and a lot of a lot of action. What would I say we need to do more of? I do think. And, and I mentioned this already, in addition to the renewable development, which is critical, we need to really start tackling emissions and reducing real emissions from the economy, designing out emissions that are coming online from other projects. And I think it's being more and more recognized with um, some of the standards as well, such as GFANS, you know, and others uh, talking about managed phase out of, of carbon intensive assets really understanding that in the ecosystem to allow investors to have that strategy. So if emissions go up, you know, there's an understanding that they're going up in order to invest for them to come down. Um, and then just getting after it. Thanks. And what about your thoughts, Anya? So I think I, I have a little schizophrenic on it. It depends what day you ask me this question, Emily, you might get a different answer. But today I've obviously woken up on the right side of the bed and I'm feeling pretty positive actually and and I and I appreciate the sort of backdrop of what's going on on the news and um and the political politicization of it actually it kind of I think we've it's been quite interesting around in the UK um and the local by-election of what happened in the some of the London boroughs around actually tackling the low emission zone um and, and whether there's genuinely the, the the populace were voting based on that. And I think that becomes quite interesting actually that kind of do we think all the narratives slow down because of the political timeframes and cycles that are in play. But I guess for me, the things that make me feel positive are that I see money moving into this space. I think kind of there is real commitment and it's not just people saying it, it's money is moving into organizations assets businesses and it's being deployed and it is making a difference and we're seeing big named organizations not just feeling like they should say something but actually putting their money where their mouth is and and i think kind of that we'll see that happening more and more and that not being about optics but actually because it's it's returning shareholder value so um I, I, I'm, I'm excited by that i think although what was horrific with the challenges in ukraine and the shifts that the monumental shifts that have had to take place and rejig post what that meant for the energy system in and around europe i think that should actually give us confidence that we can act with pace um, and we can respond and i think it's kind of when parties are galvanized around something um quite significant things can happen. And so kind of actually you can see what has taken place in Germany in response to their reliance on energy coming through from there. Actually, they've made huge shifts and that not only being from a sort of geopolitical point of view and a corporate perspective, but actually also from a nation and the individual um, response that they took to reducing actually their demand. Um, so I, I think that shows that the, the will of uh, people can can make a, a and coupled with purpose makes a makes a huge difference and the, the other thing I'm quite excited about with my daughter who's only nine but talking about this this is now a regular discussion in our in our household and her talking about what she wants to do when she grows up is absolutely tied to this and I see this in our own business as well we have amazing young talent coming into the workplace with a huge desire to make a difference and drive for purpose and putting their talent to 
making a shift to decarbonize. And so I think kind of coupled with that, when you can couple that with money and and a drive from actually the society wanting it, I think we should have a lot to be positive about. Emily, have we managed to convince you that the glass is half full? <laughs> the heart glasses. I think I'd started on a morning where I was feeling like the glass is, uh, is half empty. From my perspective, yeah, I think it sways probably hour to hour, minute to minute, day to day, definitely. As you know, you see very positive momentum in some geographies. Sometimes you see really quite negative political rhetoric, I think, which is a thing that worries me. And particularly, Annie, you talked about the by-election piece in, in the UK. And what concerns me in particular is actually, whilst we're all here doing what I think is, well, you're all doing brilliant work, frankly, the degree to which individuals making individual choices on a daily basis about their consumption, the companies that they want to purchase goods and services from, and who they want to have their relationships with, I think is a massive challenge for us as a society. And I think that without some of that demand pull coming from individual consumers, and in some cases, um, corporates, I, I still feel like we've got a big mountain to climb. That's what concerns me. Just on a micro point, I've now stopped getting taxis around to see my clients and I've made my poor team. We're all cycling across London on our Bromptons and our line bikes yesterday. So we're kind of the, the micro changes. But I think that was an interesting one, actually, that example, because as a Beringa, we've actually now going forward into next year's business planning. We will have our emissions per business unit and with a with the targets around reduction and so kind of I think this is making it real for parts so I spent sort of the last the last 10 years of my career helping other organizations decarbonize and now I've got to do that with my team and uh, they were most most unhappy because it started raining on the route I think these are small changes that we kind of need to start getting into our day-to-day lives yeah, and uh, great to hear you demonstrated some best practice. And I know there's, uh, our carbon budgets are certainly causing lots of conversations within our business and lots of uh, reprioritization, but that's in no way a bad thing. Thank you both for your perspectives. And Anna, it's really nice to hear a positive outlook. So I really, really appreciate that from both of you. And you're actually, your point around acting at pace really resonated with me as well in terms of when we need to, we absolutely are able to, and we just need to increasingly do that, particularly in the climate space. If we can respond to the challenges associated with Ukraine, then, then there's, there's you know precedent for us to be able to do that. I just wanted to say thank you to you both. I am really grateful that you've taken your time out of busy and frankly, what are critical roles to share your perspectives. Personally, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I'm sure that our listeners will do too. I'm sorry to say we've run out of time for today, but Kelly, it's been an immense pleasure having you on our podcast. It's been really insightful and I'm certain your views will resonate with our listeners. Anya, also many thanks to you for joining us. And thank you as well to all of our listeners. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do follow, like, share, and also look out for future installments of the Climate and Sustainability Trailblazers. We've got some really exciting guests in the pipeline who will bring equally as unique perspectives on the markets that they work in. And if you have any feedback, then please do share that with us as well. Thank you. Thank you both. 